This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta and welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. Our guest today is Jordan Rose, who has made a name for himself on the New York scene with his rooted and soulful drumming. He has toured or recorded with instrumental and vocal acts of his generation, such as Corey Wong and Theo Katzman of Wolfpack, as well as previous generations, such as his first touring gig after college with bluesman Joe Lewis Walker. During quarantine, he's been active on Instagram, leading collaborations with a wide variety of players from around the world, even putting out an open invitation for other drummers to trade. If you want to help support what we do here at Working Drummer Podcast, we invite you to become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive educational content from our former guests. We're populating new content regularly, and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. So as you'll hear, I was immediately drawn to Jordan's playing just because of the overall feel-good vibe he puts out from behind the drums, and I'm happy to say that the vibe feels equally good in conversation. So here we go. Hope you dig Jordan Rose. my radar was um was these uh, sort of drum trading collabs that you've been doing on instagram my buddy kevin leon from uh saint paul and the broken bones did one yeah. with you. we've had him on the show about a year ago um and uh you know of course i immediately wanted to do one and just like play with you but um it it really jumped out to me because like the the first things I want to talk to you about are what jumped out to me in just that short little video that you put out and the first one was just how you move behind the kit. Um, this is something I'm, I'm thinking more and more about. Um, you, you just have like a very bouncy, dancey kind of organic movement behind the kit. And I'm wondering where this came from. Like, is this something you cultivated? Is that, did this come from some influence early in your playing or was this just kind of how you moved from the time you sat down at the kit? Wow. Well, first of all, thanks for the nice words. Yeah, man. And uh, I've watched your uh, collab that we did, and oh. a couple, uh, so, you know, a handful of times. I watched it again this morning. Oh, cool! And you sound great, man. Thank I you, love, man. I appreciate uh, it. I love how you were like picking up stuff from the track, like the little triplets, and you did like the, you know, the, I don't know what you the the ride little, to the snare, little scrapey doodah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> little Tony Williams, whatever, you know. Right, but, uh, right. Yeah, you sound great, man. Thank um, you, man. It's all stolen material. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. I, I can relate to that. Mm -hmm. But uh, so, 
in terms of your question, moving behind the kit, I think it's been a natural development. Um, you know, the process of feeling more comfortable behind the kit. Mm. Um, I'm, I know you're a taller guy. I heard you said in a prior email, you're like six, five or whatever. Right. I'm, I'm about the same, maybe an inch shorter and, uh, probably a lot heavier than you do. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so, you know, a tall man living in a, a, an average man's height world, you know, when I sit down at other people's drums at jam sessions or whatever, it's always been a, 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 a process of feeling comfortable. And, um, so I think I've just put a lot of thought into kind of how I want to feel behind the drums and I found to kind of have this, this flow where I can kind of move and adjust no matter how the drums are set up. Yeah. Uh, that it's, I don't know, it's kind of turned into what it is and I think it's continually morphing. Um, yeah. And another thought is I had an uncle once who would come to some of my concerts and, and he sent me an article about, what did he call it? A two cheek musician. And I was like, well, what does that mean? You know? And, uh, he was all excited about this article that he found and he sent it to me. He's like, you're a two cheek musician. And, um, <laughs> and basically the, the idea of it was, it was interviewing some pianists, some classical pianists. I don't know who it was. And when he played, he would like rotate between his butt cheeks and, and he was, and it, so there was like a flow of movement, you right. know, in his, right. in his approach. And, and anyways, that just kind of stood out to me. I was like, Oh, I guess it, it makes sense to kind of move a little bit. We are doing something that we're wanting to make other people move. So right. might as well move ourselves a little bit and, you know, yeah. I don't know. It's it's cool. Like uh, you, you mentioned kind of like just finding a way to be comfortable on, on different sets. And, and one way to do that is for like your upper body to kind of take you around, Sure. you know? Um, and I, I talk to my students about this all the time. Like from the very first time they do a 16th note fill, like from the snare down to the toms, I'm like, don't just reach with your arms, you know, let your upper body kind of escort you around the kit a little bit. Um, and you like, I, I just want to show them your video because, like, your upper body is just <laughs> taking uh. your arms everywhere. It's really cool. <laughs> Thanks, um, man. Yeah. Um, and the second thing that that jumped out at me about that video was that you're you're getting some huge sounds out of the drums and cymbals with what appears to be a pretty light touch. Mm. Um, like you're, it, it doesn't seem like you're really digging into the drums too much, but you know the sound, the sound coming out of them is, is just big and fat and huge. So like, how do you get those sounds? Well, yeah. Thanks again, man. Uh, you're making me feel all good right now, <laughs> <laughs> man. It's it just that, just that minute of a video you put, I mean, you've put up shitloads of videos, but the, the, sure. the one with the trading and, and the, the, who are you thing, it was just like great sounds. And I was like, shit, this guy just looks and sounds fucking awesome. So. <laughs> yeah. thank you man thank you so yeah light touch and big sounds um also a process but i think in my little recording setup that i have here uh which is at my apartment in brooklyn um it's not a very big space and i've i've definitely you know tried to track things where i'm hitting quite a bit harder mm-hmm. and i listen back 
and in my mind, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I was really digging in. This is going to sound great. And then I listen back and it sounds kind of choked or something just it doesn't sound as, you know, warm and round as I thought it would, or as mm-hmm. I was hoping that it would. And so I've started to just ex- with experimentation with this particular space, um, that if I play a little bit lighter, you know, the sound is bouncing off several surfaces that are not that far from me. And so it's, it actually sounds bigger, um, yeah. you know, in this particular case, if I was in a big, you know, avatar studios, maybe I could dig in a little bit more mm-hmm. and, and it would sound even better than it does in my little space, you know, but, um, yeah, I, I think, I think I've just kind of come to realize that I don't have to exert all of my muscle into every note to get a big sound. Yeah. That the drums will speak even with a lighter touch and oftentimes will will sound even better. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because it's it's um good uh it, it's good for me to keep in mind because you know in the last few months i've been getting my space together here which is, as you can see is just like the size of an average bedroom sure um it's not a big space and um you know i w- we'll get into you know what you do as far as eq and compression and all that shit but mm-hmm. just the idea of you know working with your room and if you're in a small room you don't have to do hardly anything to fill it up <laughs> yeah um so, um, so yeah, so talk about the, uh, the post process. Sure. Sure. Um, so when you say post, do you mean like the mail, like the postman? Right. Yeah. That's snail yeah. mail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you mail a CD to your clients and say, how does this sound? And then they write you a letter back. <laughs> wow. That would actually be kind of cool. It, we, um, we might be heading back there, man. It's yeah. <laughs> go back to a barter system here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Man. <laughs> um, so post, you know, so I record, and I just try and get it sounding as good as I can with the original source. Um, I'm I'm not I don't consider myself an engine, audio engineer or a mixer. I consider myself a drummer who has a vision of how I want my drums to sound. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, it's just it's been a lot of experimentation. You know, had a ton of time with the quarantine, and so have just been diving in. And, uh, you know, trying some different overhead setups. And I I purchased some tutorial videos from Dan Bailey. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Yeah, I've heard that name, I feel like. Yeah. He's out on the West Coast. He has a really great uh, recording setup. Gets fantastic sounds. Um, and he's the MD and, and drummer for several years now for Father John Misty. Okay, yeah. And... Um, and he also did one of these Who videos, uh, the double drum collabs, and we kind of became connected that way. Yeah. It's been really cool, but he's... Um, why did I bring him up? Oh, the instructional DVDs. I, I purchased those from him. It's like an online download thing. And have been just spending a little bit of time um, every day. You know, he talks about um, getting different sounds, vintage sounds, modern sounds, uh, and he kind of just goes through his whole process and, um, and I like the, the sounds he gets. So I figured, Hey, I might as well learn from a guy who I really like what he's doing. Right. And, um, so yeah, those have been helpful. 
But after kind of experimenting and getting sounds that I think, oh, that sounds cool. It seems like there's no phase going on between the, the overheads or whatever. Um, then I'll just sit down. I, I record into Pro Tools and I'll, I'll mess around with some, some uh, plugins. I recently got the Isotope Neutron 3, I think it's called, um, which I wasn't too familiar with, but a friend of mine works for them and, and wanted me to check it out. So, and honestly, I've been blown away. Like they have these, uh, these presets for, you know, whatever kick, snare, toms, hi-hat, room, overheads. And I've just been kind of like going through them and they kind of drastically change the sound, mm-hmm. which, I, which I like because then it's like, oh, this is actually doing something when I, right. when I hear it, you know? Right, right. Um, and yeah, so I've just kind of messed with that and, you know, it's like I with everything. It's a process. I'll 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 hit that preset. If any real like mix engineers are listening, they're probably like, "Oh, this guy is an amateur." You know? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't think so, man. I mean, maybe maybe so, but I I can't tell you how. Like since I started this process in my room, um, yep. you know, I'm 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 just flying blind. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. So I'm going into logic and and just you know turning knobs and hitting buttons and trying out (laughs) trying out different rooms in the reverb presets and trying Mm. out different things in the compression presets and like you know i i basically know what each little thing is telling me as far as like the you know the the audio physics of it but i don't know how to manipulate it like i couldn't recreate that preset by myself so I'm right. just going around like, oh, that sounds like shit. What about this one? Oh, this one's cool. Okay, yeah, keep that one in mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly, man. It's like yeah. choosing so a I, font. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I could not create a font, but I, right, I can use the shit out of them. So I think most, uh, you know, most drummers, and I would imagine most home musicians or home studio musicians are kind of going through the same process of like hunt and peck and trial and error and. Uh, you figure out what you like and what works for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And just another note on that, um, something that was kind of encouraging in this whole drummer home recording world, which I feel like is rapidly growing mm-hmm. because of technology and just the need, you know, um, several years ago, probably four years ago now, I took a private lesson over at Aaron Sterling's studio in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And and it was all about home recording because I was interested in, you know, getting more into it. And one thing that stood out to me from that lesson is, is he was like, um, he was saying, you know, for those that are not familiar with Aaron, he's recorded with everyone, right? John Mayer, Taylor Swift, right? You know, just his list is is huge. But he was saying seventy five percent of his work now is from his home studio. Yeah. And whereas it used to be a hundred percent of his work was in, you know, the big studios. Right. And, and within a couple of years time, once he started doing home recording and he started just like us, he said, he's like, you know, I've, I've recorded a ton in studios, but I didn't know anything about engineering. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, I invested in some gear and started messing around and asking questions to my friends and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, this was four years ago, so probably even more now, you know, probably 80 or 90 percent of his work is there in his little home studio. And it's it's, you know, just like you, it's a bedroom. It's nothing right. crazy. But he's but we're hearing his recordings on the radio on massive recordings. Yeah. Sounding sounding fantastic. So yeah, that was yeah. kind of encouraging to me. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think I'm I'm learning to um, just sort of trust my ears about what I want to hear, um, right. and and also not not overthinking it. Like a, a buddy of mine who's an engineer told me, if uh, you know, if it sounds good in the mix, don't fuck with it. Like mm. if you know, if you solo your drums and there's something that you're hearing that you're not quite digging or whatever but then you put it in the mix with the song and you're like oh yeah that sounds like i want it to sound just like leave it <laughs> good know? advice yeah yeah like so that. yeah there's just those little those little sort of nuggets you pick up i mean you could you know I, it sounds like you're going through a course with this guy dan bailey and and really getting into some of the techniques and and etc um but uh i've i've been encouraged just by my uh ability to kind of um you know, listen like a listener, like does, sure. does, does this sound like I would want it to sound if I was listening to this song and I hadn't played drums? Um, did, have you found some of that where like you, you didn't quite trust the, the drum sound alone, but then as part of the larger picture, you're like, Oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and that's one thing that Dan Bailey talks about in his course that has kind of opened my mind a little bit is, is he talks about the drums taking up certain amount of space. Mm -hmm. So he was like, if you're going to, if you're recording a track that's going to have a lot of, you know, electronic layers or, you know, percussion programming on top, he's like, you're probably going to want to have deader drums so they don't take up as much space and it leaves space for these layers. Mm -hmm. And I've never thought of it in that way. And, and on, you know, on the other side, he's like, um, you know, if you have a big open ringy snare and toms for kind of like a more rock sound or whatever, he's like, that takes up a lot of space in a mix. So you just have to be, make sure it's appropriate for the song. And so that was kind of an interesting way to start thinking of it as drums taking up space. Yeah. You know, audio in a, in a mix. I, I never really thought of it like that. I just thought of, oh, what does that sound like in the song? But kind of thinking of it as space was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. And th like if you can kind of envision the the space that the whole song exists in, like the physical space, you yeah. know, when it comes to reverb or whatever, you know, you might try to put a, a bunch of reverb on your drums and, and, you know, get that bottom sound or whatever. Yeah. But something I've found is that like the sort of the ambiance of a song uh, is, is it comes it comes from the 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 song as a whole right so if you take like the ambiance of a song as a whole and try to put it all on your drums it's just going to be way too much <laughs> true <laughs> you know yeah like so so if you like you said if you if you kind of design your drum sound to just take up less space mm -hmm. then it can be part of this overall bigger picture and and the you know the sound the ambiance of that song gets kind of superimposed onto your drums because it's part of this bigger picture Totally. When it comes to like trusting what you hear, like you've, you've talked about this before in, in some other articles and so forth, but you went through like a, a hearing crisis 10 years ago or so, right? Yeah. About that. Yeah. So, so just briefly describe what that was. Yeah. So basically it started with the ear infection in my right ear. It was like super painful, went to the doctor, got some ear drops, the the pain went away, but my hearing was still felt like I had swimmer's ear or something. Like, just couldn't really hear out of that ear. Um, but I kind of ignored it just because I didn't feel like going back to the doctor. And anyway, 
several months later, a friend was like, hey, you should probably get that checked out. If your hearing hasn't come back, that could be permanent damage. And you know, that freaked me out. So I went straight back to the doctor and and the doctor said, mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 um, basically, long story short, is I had this growth that was like eating away at my hearing bones. Mm-hmm. And so it was permanent, you know, se- severe damage that needed a lot of attention Um, I had over the course of two years, got four major surgeries where they like went in through the back of my skull, like right behind my ear and, um, two surgeries, I got rid of the growth and the the third surgery, they put like a prosthetic hearing bone in. That's nuts. It was crazy, man. And (laughs) (laughs) cause the hearing, the, the eardrum was fine. It was just these little bones they're called like the stapes and the anvil and the hammer or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, they send the vibrations to the eardrum, so they were just they were like disappearing. So my eardrum wasn't getting the vibrations that it should be getting, you know. Right, right. So this prosthetic basically like connected what was still left, so that it could vibrate more normally again. Right, and this is tiny shit, right? This is oh. like. These bones yeah. are like the size of a pinhead, just kind of floating there behind your eardrum. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 So it's it was it was a crazy time. I, I didn't know if I was ever going to be able to hear again out of that ear. Like it was, you know, yeah, I'd be like sitting next to a girl in class at college and she'd be on my right side and she would like say something to me. And I just, you know, couldn't hear what she was saying. <laughs> <laughs> and that made her want you even more. Oh yeah, <laughs> ladies man over here. You know. Oh right. right. <laughs> um, so your your hearing today is still not normal, right? It's still not back to a hundred percent. Right. Not in, not in this year. It's I, I say it has probably like a fifteen to twenty decibel pad. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. So my my question about all that was. How how did you sort of learn to trust your hearing again when it came to production, when it came to tuning your drums, when it came to playing a room? Um, like I was I was reminded of this uh, this famous chef uh, Grant Ackett's or Ashats Ackett's whatever. Um, okay. A few years ago, he got tongue cancer and yeah. like had to get part of like it, it was down in his throat and like you know he went through a couple surgeries but now his sense of taste is like not a hundred percent and he had to recalibrate like everything he did in the kitchen because he's just constantly tasting during a service right and there was a time when like he just could not trust his own taste at all and had to rely on everyone else in the kitchen to uh, and you know now he's recalibrated and so forth but how did, how did you go through that process of like learning to trust your ears again yeah, that's that's a really good question, and wow, that's crazy about uh, that chef. Yeah, um, you know, during that time when I couldn't hear at all out of my right ear, mm-hmm. I I had to rely heavily on my left ear because that's all I had, right? And um, and I think it it made me. Sorry, my FaceTime just disappeared. There you are. Um, I think that it it made me rely on touch a little bit more because, Mm -hmm. you know, if I was playing jazz and the ride cymbals on my right ear, it's, it sounds way different if that sound isn't coming into your right ear and it's having to travel around your head to your left ear, which is facing the opposite way. Yeah. 
and so I, I kind of just had to rely and just say, you know what, this feels good. I feel relaxed. Like yeah. I can still hear it, but just not in the full, you know, quality that people with normal hearing could hear it. And and so I think I just had to kind of trust, like, hey, this is feeling good in my hands. It's gonna sound good. Um, and sometimes I would kind of turn my head to where my left ear was facing more towards my right, just yeah. to check in, just to check in and. And be like, oh, you know, how are we, how are we doing over on this side of the drum set? Right. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely been a process. Um, another thing during that time, a, a really valuable lesson that I learned is, is that you know, music speaks to the heart. And mm-hmm. there's, I've told this story in a couple of the interviews, but I'll just summarize it. Um, during a really dark time, during this time where I didn't know if I was going to get my hearing back. I was playing a concert and uh, a deaf woman approached me, her and her husband approached me after the show. And I didn't know she was deaf, but she started talking and she said, hey, I can't hear anything. I'm completely deaf. But what you guys did tonight, she's like, even though I couldn't hear it, I felt it in my heart. And uh, that just like hit me so deeply. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because it's like, all right, you know, at least I can still hear a little bit. I I have one good ear. And uh, and here's here's a person with no hearing still able to feel the music, and that was just a testament to the power of music, and um, and that you know we don't necessarily have to hear it to to feel it. Yeah, yeah, that's totally true. And I th- I think you know part of that is performers. Um, you know, we talked about just the visual aspect of it, and and you know the way you move, the way different drummers move. Um, you know, it really informs like how you experience that music, you know, because if I like I, I saw I saw you move and I heard you play and those two things came at me at the same time and like informed each other. And, you know, if I heard the if I heard the same sound uh, and and you didn't move that way, like if you had like a really aggressive stroke or if you were just a more kind of like rigid muscular player. Mm-hmm. I would ex- I would experience what you're playing in a different way, not in a worse way or better or whatever, but just sure. you know the 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 way music is visually experienced really um, informs the way it its overall effect, you know. Totally, yeah, yeah. That, that's a really good point. What's up, Berlin? I called in six so I have been wanting to interview a drummer from Houston for a long time. Ah. And I have I have yet to interview someone who like actually lives there and works there currently, but um, but that's your hometown. Um, so what w- like what kind of a music town was was Houston to grow up in and to to learn drums in? Sure, sure. So just to clarify, it it was my hometown. That's where I grew up. Right. But I've been I've been in New York for eight years now or whatever. Right. Um, but yeah, growing up in Houston, um, you know. Once I moved away from there, I think is when I realized how fortunate I was to be surrounded by 
a really amazing scene that was really inviting to younger musicians. You know, I, I still see it today when I go back and visit my parents or whatever, and and I'll hang out with you know my old drum teacher Joel Fulgham, a great dude, and he'll be like, oh, you know, I'm I'm teaching this student. He's a, a sophomore in high school, and he's subbing for me on my gigs, and it's just you know that's what he did for me. I would right. sub, I would sub for my teacher, you know, in high school, and I'd be so nervous, you know, to play with with these guys uh, who are were all amazing musicians, and, and but they were so kind to me, and um, you know, even though I didn't sound anywhere close to to my teacher's level, they were still like stoked to have me on the gig and. Um, yeah, it was just a very kind of, uh, welcoming scene. Um, the, the best of players were the nicest, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also just able to go out and, and see that music. Um, you know, there was a couple jam sessions going on when I lived there and, uh, some jazz clubs that I would go to regularly that I, you know, I would just go there and I would stay from 9 p.m. when they started till, you know, 1 a.m. when they finished and just yeah. soaked in. And uh, that was a really big part of my development, which I'm grateful for. Yeah, yeah. Was there um, a predominant uh, style of music on that scene that you were particularly attracted to? At, yeah. At, at that time, when I was living there in high school, uh, in you know, before, but high school is when I really started getting going out and seeing music and stuff. Um, it was jazz and then kind of like blues rock, like jam bandy. Right. Uh, you know, I, I got really into like Stevie Ray Vaughan and sure. that, that kind of Texas blues. Yep. Um, so, yeah. So I was going to some of these blues clubs and some of the jazz clubs. And then right before I left Houston, I kind of discovered there's this whole like kind of smooth jazz scene. Yeah. Um, which was like incredible i remember going to see some of that and just super heavy players yeah that you know and i think like that scene was like chris dave and some of those guys would kind of hang out in that scene when they came back and visited as you know kind of a fusion of like hip-hop and smooth jazz and, and yeah gospel and yeah yeah um, and, and a lot of music that gets labeled as smooth jazz, I mean, that that phrase just has a generally negative connotation, I think, among yes. especially musicians. But um, but you you get into it and you're like, well, I mean, where where are the lines between smooth jazz and adult contemporary and fusion and funk and yes. R&B and gospel? And, you know, like it's not it's not Kenny G. <laughs> you know? yeah, definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> I mean, some of it kind of is, but a lot of it sure. really isn't. Um, right. And and the grooves are just as heavy, and the solos are are just as, uh, you know, face melting. And um, yeah, I've I've interviewed a couple of drummers, and and I've played some some gigs that are that are just like, I mean, yeah, it says smooth jazz on the banner. <laughs> right. Know, but holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, and, and that's, you know, it, it is unfortunate that that genre sometimes gets a bad rap mm -hmm. uh, because there's so much, you know, authenticity and, and soul and depth behind a lot of these people who are labeled as smooth jazz artists. Um, 
And are you familiar with, with Corey Wong at all? Yeah. Um, so I've had the opportunity to work with him a little bit. And that's one of his missions is to kind of like make smooth jazz cool again. Yeah. Um, and he's done a couple of things with, with Dave Cause, who's been labeled as one of those smooth jazz guys. And so I think a lot of, you know, musicians kind of turn their head and, and scoff a little bit. Oh, you know, Dave Cause, like, we're not going to pay attention to him. But Corey Wong, who has a lot of respect from the musical circle, has brought Dave Cause in and said, yo, check this guy out. He can actually, he's insane. Yeah. And uh, and it's been kind of a cool thing to to see this, you know, this merging of uh, of, of, de- of what's the ages, you know, because Dave Cause is way older and Corey's right. young. And yeah, right. anyway. That's super cool. And I mean, it's just, it's, you know, I think what it boils down to is that it's, it's instrumental music. It's, you know, it's not bebop. It's not free jazz. It's not a jam band. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, it's instrumental music. Um, And I think if we, if we think about it that way, instead of, you know, labeling it smooth jazz or just like dismissing it or whatever, um, uh, I, I think it would get a little more, a little more respect, a little more, uh, attention, especially in the in the community of musicians that that tend to, like you said, kind of turn their nose up and be like, "I'm not doing that shit." <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, more um, gigs for us in the smooth jazz world, then. Say what? Uh, more gigs for us in the smooth jazz world. Yeah, man, bring it, <laughs> bring it. That's Disinfect right. those cruise ships and get everybody back to work, man. That's right, man. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, um, one, like your, your first major gig, uh, sort of like after you were done with college, we'll get back to college in a second, but, sure. um, this guy, Joe Lewis Walker, who is like as straight up a blues act as <laughs> there is. Um, <laughs> yeah. but you know, since, since then, like you said, you've, you've played with Corey Wong and Theo Katzman, um, mm-hmm. who is another, uh, Wolfpack associated guy. Um, and you're, you're getting into Broadway. Um, so it, it, it kind of surprised me to to see like Joe Lewis Walker on there. I was like, man, just straight up blues. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, you spent, you spent time at Berkeley. Um, I guess I'm, I'm just wondering kind of among all these artists and, and these different genres that, that you're involved in and have been involved in. Um, it seems like you're, style and and your overall sound um is you can just plug it into any one of those things um is it is it as easy to just kind of plug into each one of those things as i think it is or are there major adjustments that you make it at least mentally or whatever yeah good question thanks man um i guess i'll answer that by just talking about one of my biggest influences which is steve gad yeah i've I've looked up to him from pretty much day one, uh, you know, when I was like 12 years old and, and really getting into this thing um, because of his ability to play any genre and to have a voice, but to also serve the music incredibly mm-hmm. well and just, you know, so soulful, so deep. It's never about him. It's always about the music. Yeah. Um, and so that's always stood out to me and has been kind of a goal of mine is to be versatile, to be able to play a, you know, a bebop gig, play a smooth jazz gig, play with a singer songwriter, 
because you know Steve Gadd is playing with James Taylor and then Chick Corea and then you know yeah. whoever else uh, yeah and just totally switching it up all the time um, and so yeah I guess that's that's kind of been my goal is is just to to serve the music but also try to come from a from my heart and and you know not be like oh I'm playing a blues gig what was that shuffle beat that I learned and on page 30 of the shuffle right you know, textbook right. but but to really like try to to enjoy what i'm doing and and put you know put my soul into it um yeah so i think one of the hardest sorry go ahead you were almost done <laughs> i am done so <laughs> <laughs> i think one of the, one of the hardest things about that is is just having the conviction to play how you want to play. Um, and it's, it's so much easier said than done because like you said, you know, if you're in a certain genre, if you're, if you're with a certain kind of group, then different voices from that genre start creeping into your head. Especially I was talking last week with Steve Haas, a, a, an LA drummer about how, you know, just a different snare drum can put you in a di completely different frame of mind and might take you away from where you sound good, mm. you know, mentally um so like you you mentioned gad and you know you're the 837th drummer on this podcast to to mention him but he just he he keeps coming up because he's such an authentic player because he plays with such conviction no matter who he's playing with like he is steve fucking gad he plays <laughs> how he plays and you know just the conviction with which he plays makes it um you know, appropriate <laughs> somehow. Yes. And it's one of the things I struggle with is like, you know, having, having the discipline, the confidence, the conviction, you know, whatever combination of virtues it is that just says, I know, you know, I know how I sound good and just being able to stick to that, no matter who you're playing with, I think is just a huge challenge for, every drummer and every musician really, and not letting those other voices creep into your head. Right. Yeah. You know, another thought I had on that is I growing up, you know, I was an anxious little kid. I was always really shy. It's the mm -hmm. youngest kid. My brothers always took, you know, the, the attention and, and everything. So I kind of would just lay low and, and a lot of times didn't really want to say anything just in like a conversation because I was, I was nervous too. I was shy, mm -hmm. you know, Maybe some people can relate to that, but um, someone told me once, like, if you're nervous in a conversation, just listen, and you'll know when to when to say a little something to participate. And so I've always remembered that, like, you know, some people when they get nervous, they they start talking a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. But my what I've kind of trained myself to do if I get nervous is to just listen and just let other people kind of you know do their thing and and jump in when you feel inspired to do so and I think that relates to music and you know if you're in a, a situation that you're uncomfortable you know play you got to play of course but just listen and you don't have to play a fill you don't have to do anything complicated uh, chances are they're not going to make you solo right away so right. <laughs> you don't, you don't got to worry about that just listen and chances are you're going to start feeling more comfortable and be inspired as to how to kind of develop in that situation. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so cool how you said, uh, you know, some, some people when they're anxious talk more 
Right. And I think <laughs> at, at least musically speaking, that's definitely true for me. Um, and, and the, the times that I look back on what I just played or hear it back on a recording, like I, I kind of put myself back in the frame of mind that I was in when I played all those notes and it didn't go so well. And sure. it's not a good frame of mind. It's not a centered frame of mind. It's not focused. It's not confident. It's just kind of like a little anxious, uncomfortable, just gotta, gotta do something. Gotta feel, you know, can't leave this space empty. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, really, really trying to stay in touch with, um, that, that listening mentality and just that, you know, speak when you have something to say and right. you watch, you watch Steve Gadd play, like he's listening to himself. He's concentrating so fucking hard about like what he wants to hear. And it's sure. just coming out every, you know, every part of his body. Right. Um, yeah, that's really cool. So when it, when it comes to, um, like another question I have about these different acts that you've played with is sort of the, the tension that sometimes arises between different ways of leading a band or different ways of rehearsing music or just sort of going about a performance. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, something like Joe Lewis Walker and something like, you know, Theo Katzman or Corey Wong is a perfect illustration of that. Whereas Joe Lewis Walker, I would imagine is just more intuitive, less reading sort of more feeling based, maybe not even talking about stuff. Whereas, um, you know, the Wolfpack crew is younger, you know, more, more likely to have gone through some sort of college program, reading charts, the more technical, um, you know, academic, if you will, way of approaching it. Um, so first of all, am I right about that? And second, how, how do you navigate those, those different styles? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely truth to what you're saying. Um, I think with, with the Wolfpack crew, while they are educated and, you know, have all gone through music school and you know, I think most of them could probably read music and, and stuff like that. It's, there's never any any charts or or any anything like that. It's very, very uh, I don't know, kind of just loose, I guess you could mm -hmm. say. Um, but there there's definitely differences in working with those guys than in working with with Joe Lewis Walker, who's you know been in this business fifty years longer or forty years longer than all of us, you know. Right. Right. And and has you know toured with you know, all the, the blues legends, you know, he's, he's lived that lifestyle, um, been around all those guys and, you know, been around, been to every part of the world yeah, playing blues music, you know, this guy has, has lived the blues his entire life. Um, and I, you know, I, that was my first gig right out of Berkeley, as you said. And I, I look at that as kind of like my master's degree. I did my undergrad then I started playing with Joe Lewis Walker. I think that was like the best master's degree I could could have pursued because I learned so much working with someone with that much experience. Mm -hmm. um, it was hard at times because he, you know, he he would be tough on us. He would mm -hmm. what? I mean, the first lesson that comes to mind is when he's singing to bring the volume back yeah. because we, you know we'd be in a, a you know, a guitar solo or whatever on a, a shuffle or whatever it was. 
and we'd be raging, right? The volume would be super low and it'd come back into singing. I'd be like, oh, I got to keep this energy up. This is feeling great. And he would just, that was not cool. That was not cool. <laughs> I right. learned my lesson. You know, he, he communicated that to me in a couple of different ways um, yeah. that were very clear and maybe not always the easiest to accept. But yeah. um, But to this day, you know, several years later, it's like, okay, if someone's singing, you got to back off a little bit because they got to be able to, <laughs> to, to sing and feel comfortable and not right. strain their voice. Yeah. Uh, so that was a big lesson among, among many others. So I think that's the main, the main difference between working with Joe Lewis Walker, working with Corey and Theo is, um, you know, there, it was just a little bit more rough with, with Joe because he's, yeah. He's kind of that classic bluesman, you know, who kind of right. who kind of beat you up. And and Theo and Corey are some of the nicest people in the entire planet. You know, it's the but the cool thing about them is they're they're both such deep musicians. They they're so good at giving instruction, but still leaving room for the everyone everyone to have their own interpretation and and put their self into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's yeah, I really look up to, to all those guys, but you know, especially Theo and Corey, the way they lead bands yeah. is really inspiring. And uh, yeah, and I think it shows, you know, in their music because they get a great result out of their bands, and mm-hmm. I think that a lot of that comes from their leadership. I totally agree. And I was I was thinking the other day about how like there's there's the old uh, uh, sayings, something like this. It's not it's it's not music friends it's the music business right (laughs) and that that's that's true to an extent like i know what it's saying but like it it really is music friends like people work with their friends they hire their friends um and and you know even if you don't have a long friendly relationship with someone a friendly way of like leading a band you know that's that's collegial and positive and and you know just is more enjoyable for everybody and usually gets a better result um right. so it, it kind of is music friends and maybe it should be more music friends and less music business i don't know i like that man yeah. you're up to something i like that. <laughs> <laughs> um the, the other thing i'm wondering about um you know joe lewis walker and kind of the trajectory of your career and your playing style after that was like you came out of berkeley and rightly or wrongly, I associate Berkeley with just like all kinds of notes, just like <laughs> fusion, everybody playing all the shit all the time, um, you know, really like face melting. And that it may be fair or unfair. But I, what I'm getting at is, you know, you 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 came out of Berkeley and, and your first gig out of this environment is with a blues act where you just have to like completely hold, hold it down. <laughs> And, you know, you kind of strip your grooves to the studs. And um, so was was that sort of a, a tough adjustment to make coming out of college? And do you feel that influenced your your playing afterwards? Like, in, in other words, if your first gig out of Berkeley had been with Snarky Puppy, do you think you would sound the same today? Mm, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think, yeah. I don't think it would sound the same today. Um, I think this this blues gig right out of college has kind of set me on a, a trajectory of more of a meat and bones 
yeah, two and four kind of player. But to be honest, that's that's what I desired. Um, yeah. So I'm grateful for that trajectory. Um, you know, back to Steve Gadd. And, you know, growing up in Texas, I, 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 love, I love the blues. I love playing a good shuffle. I love just playing a simple, slow blues and letting people just, you know, pour their soul out over it. Right. Uh, and, and so I was stoked about this gig. And, and in Berkeley, yes, I was, I was studying, you know, Afro-Cuban and playing, you know, swing at 400 beats a minute, studying Tony Williams and, right, right. you know, in seven. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> playing, playing in seven, five, 11, all the odd meters. Right. 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 Um, and, and loving all of that. But I think as I was getting older, I was just kind of realizing like, Hey, my heart is really at this feel good, like just lay it down kind of stuff. And, um, and so the way I got the Joe Lewis Walker gig is by going to this jam session that would happen every Monday at a place called Wally's, mm-hmm. uh, which was down the street from Berkeley. And there was like a blues soul jam session every Monday. So I'd go there and, and the bass player in the house band, this guy, Lenny Bradford had started touring with Joe Lewis Walker and we connected. And, um, and honestly, I, I, that, that was some of my best education at Berkeley is going to those jam sessions. Cause you know, Lenny Bradford, this guy was just so much more experienced than any bass player I was playing with at Berkeley, you know, mm-hmm. not, yeah. not, not to diss Berkeley students. Cause there were some amazing players I was playing with there too, but to play with this guy who's traveled the world playing with many great musicians and just to try and lock in with him, I learned so much. So when he, when he referred me for this gig for Joe Lewis Walker, it was, I was super stoked. And, um, yeah, you, you know, back to back to Steve Gadd. Um, I've always loved his playing with Eric Clapton. Like, mm. you know, I'll go on YouTube and type in Eric Clapton, Steve Gadd. There's like a live at Madison Square Garden concert. Mm-hmm. And man, some of that, just the way Gadd like plays that gig, like all of his shuffles and his backbeats and the way he, he supports, you know, under Clapton's solos and stuff. Uh, I was like, I want to do that. So, yeah, right. you know, so that was kind of my goal with Joe Lewis Walker is like, what would Gad do? <laughs> right. It, right. You know? So, yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but. Well, yeah. And I mean, going back to what you were saying about when you were a kid, like being a shy kid and just kind of, you know, listening to conversations rather than lead them or really like, you know, mix it up in them. Um, right. I, you know, I think despite uh, despite the more extroverted drumming style that you sort of uh, were steeped in at Berkeley, um, the the you know the background supportive role is is where you live. Yeah. You know, just your, for your personality type, um, and it's something we've talked about before about how like most most drummers I think are actually introverts, and. <laughs> And a lot of us have like learned how to do a good extrovert impression or like we thought we were extroverts or we wanted to be extroverts. So we just kind of wore that hat for a while. Um, But I like over the last 10 years, especially I've been going through this process of like, I'm, I'm much more on your page of just like, I just, I just want to play two and four with great artists. Um, (laughs) You know, and it could be, it could be jazz. It could be funk. It could be country. 
whatever. Yes. But I, I don't need to play in seven. I don't need to take a five minute solo. Like, <laughs> just put me in a good band. I'm <laughs> You're right. You know. It put me at the back of the stage, not at the right. front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. We've talked about how like, you know, pr like proof that most drummers are introverts is that like we sit behind this fortress, you know, yeah. like singers and guitarists, they're out there on the edge of the stage and like high five and and we're like, we have literally this wall in front of us. <laughs> right. We're like, you know, we want to be up on stage. We want to be out there and hear the applause, but just like, I'm, I'm cool back here. Don't talk right. to me. <laughs> It's funny in in high school, our our high school drama director, she told my mom once that that band students that we hide behind our instruments, so we all need yeah. to take drama to to overcome that. Which you know, it's a good a good point. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. But at the time, I was like, I'm not taking drama. I just want to play my drums. You know? Right, right. <laughs> thing i want to ask you about is just uh new york and and what it's like there right now and and what you've been doing during this time um and uh and also for for players who make a big move in their career especially if it's to new york or nashville or la um i'm i'm curious as to you know what led to that decision to pick that town sure yeah so I moved, I was deciding between LA, Nashville, and New York when I was finishing up my time in Boston and I couldn't really make a decision. I went and visited the three places and nothing was really jumping out to me, but New York just kind of happened naturally because of this gig with Joe Lewis Walker. Is he and based there? Yeah, he's based like a, a couple hours outside of the city. So I started playing with him while I was still living in Boston. It was just a lot of traveling. Like we would drive you know five hours to his house for rehearsal and then drive back the same day <laughs> kind of kind of thing yeah stuff um, you're willing to do in your 20s yes exactly <laughs> exactly um but then my good friend eric finland who had also started playing he was playing uh, keys for joe Lewis walker he was like hey you know i'm thinking about moving to new york you want to you want to move and find a, a place together so so we did. We uh, we were roommates, found an apartment in, in uh, Queens. And yeah, so it was kind of cool having a buddy um, in the exact same situation. Like every night we were like, okay, where are we going to go hear music? What jam session? You know, who are we going to go watch and and stuff? So that was a really kind of cool to have that that buddy system. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a wingman. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's why I moved to New York and here we are, you know, almost eight years later and, yeah. uh, in a, in a global pandemic and <laughs> we're all quarantined and right. yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy out here right now hearing ambulances more than ever and yeah. a lot of people being affected, uh, affected, which is, you know, really sad, but, uh, seems like it's slowly getting better mm -hmm. and. And honestly, this, you know, my wife and I were, were grateful to be healthy and, and it's been kind of, um, 
a blessing in a way to have this kind of halt on normal life. Yeah, you will. Um, Because I've had a a goal for a long time to really dive into my recording setup more. Yeah, but it's hard when when you wake up, you're like, I gotta gotta you know chart out ten songs for the gig on Thursday and and do this. And by the time you do all that, it's like I I don't really want to go like sit down and try and place a microphone and (laughs) get some. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it's been kind of nice to just be able to wake up and like, after we're done here, I'm going to go up and record some, some stuff for, for a friend and, you know, probably mess around with, with the mic setup before that to dial in the sound I'm hearing in my head. And, um, so yeah, and that's what I've been doing for the last three, four weeks is Mm -hmm. a lot of time there in the studio. Um, been doing these Corona collabs. As well yeah. on them yeah um which has been really amazing like just to see and you know, i'll put a groove out there and and to see 30 or 40 people send a video back with the same groove but a totally different approach yeah uh, so that's been kind of a a really inspiring thing that's been keeping me positive during this time yeah, me too. And and it made me wonder, like, you know, why, like so many other things, like, why weren't we doing this all the time before? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, we've, you and I have never met. I live in Atlanta, you live in Brooklyn. Um, right. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's not because of coronavirus that we've never met. Like, we could have been doing this any time. You know, right. we had, we had uh, like, virtual brunch with my brother and his wife, who live in Phoenix, <laughs> yesterday. And right. we were both like, why didn't we do this all the time? Um, right. Um, so, yeah, it's been really cool to just see everybody just, like, meeting new people and, and writing new music. And, you know, I, I think part of it is because everybody has the time now. Yes. Um, but the technology's always been there. Like, the inclination's always been there. Sure. Um, so, with with these, you know, collabs or whatever other work you're doing, have have you been able to sort of scramble and and replace some income at least for the for the short term here yes yes thankfully uh some remote recording gigs are they're starting to come in more and more i think mm-hmm. uh, more than ever before and, and you know to this point and uh yeah it's it's been it's exciting it's it's like oh wow okay i guess i i gotta you know keep on this thing because that's something I've always wanted to do and it's like now starting to happen. So it's yeah. kind of, uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of drummers are in that same position where like, this is something that we've been wanting to do for a long time mm-hmm. and now we have the time to fucking figure it out. And you know, we don't, we don't necessarily have the resources to buy the mics and the, you know, everything we want, but sure. Just like digging in, figure out your sound in that room and, and, you know, f- create a lane for yourself in the market of remote recording. Sure. Um, and, and a lot of drummers I think are, are, you know, way ahead of me <laughs> in that regard. They got, on, got it, got in on this game like 10 or 12 years ago. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, when uh, when we come out of this, you know, on on the one hand, remote recording is probably going to be more commonplace than ever. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, this this has really shown us like the value of being in a room together. Yes. Uh, so I'm wondering which way it's going to go. <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe more more of both. Hopefully, I don't know. Yeah, um, a nice blend of both would be would be cool. Yeah, yeah. 
about your just sort of your your neighborhood or the places that you hang out um what's what what's a place or two that you're really looking forward to getting back into when uh when we're able to oh man well the uh the pizza slice shop on the corner sure uh, it's called broadway pizza and funny enough i just remembered a dream i had last night the dream was because <laughs> my wife and i love this place they're like yeah. the, the best margarita slice anywhere yeah. I've ever had anyway um they're closed right now because of quarantine uh but i had a a dream last night she that she was like man they closed they closed for good they're not coming back and I, <laughs> I remember we were just like so crushed over that right i hope that's not real and that that's just a dream yeah but, uh looking forward to getting a margarita slice from broadway pizza um looking forward to, to going back to rockwood music hall um yeah. great spot with you know great music happening every night of the week um yeah, and just kind of normal life, you know, getting back to playing shows and seeing yeah. friends and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, pizza, pizza and Rockwood is a good, good, uh, <laughs> good, good list there. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Cool. Um, well, hey man, thanks, uh, thanks for talking, man. It was great. It was great meeting you, and uh, look forward to seeing more, more cool sights and sounds on on Instagram. Yeah, man. And, such. Uh, such a pleasure uh, to, to meet you and, and talk to you as well. Thanks so much for having me. And right I, I forgot I forgot to mention, I actually lived in Atlanta last year. Did you really? For two and a half months, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. What were you doing here? Um, I was doing a musical at the Alliance Theater called Becoming Nancy. No shit. And uh, so my wife and I, yeah, we, we moved down there for like almost three months. And wow. it was, yeah, it was like August to October or something like that. Yeah. And uh, man, we love Atlanta. Isn't it cool? Such a cool place. Yeah, yeah, it's it a great town. Yeah, it's so. where. What part of town did you stay in? Like by the theater there? Yeah, Midtown. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Cool, man. Yeah, we didn't really talk about the Broadway thing, but it's you know we'll <laughs> next time we'll do it again. Yeah, next time. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, we. I've I've lived in Atlanta for four and a half years. Um, nice. I was in LA, LA for five years before that. Um, my, my wife got a job here kind of unsolicited. This company just came after her. Okay. Um, and, uh, the more we learned about it, like Atlanta wasn't on our radar in any sort of way. Yeah. Um, but the more we learned about it, the more it was like, holy shit, the food's amazing. The people are cool. The music is great. Like you yeah. said about Houston, like the, the best cats are the nicest cats. Right. Um, uh, and just super welcoming. Like it just, it just wrapped its arms around me as soon as I got here. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, man. Hopefully, you'll be back before too long. Hopefully, I'll be in in New York. I want to go. I want to go for that slice, dude. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll treat you to it, man. Hit me up. Boom. Right on. <laughs> great talking dude, to you, Jordan. You too, Zach. Thanks so much, man. Have a great day. Thanks again to Jordan. Definitely be on the lookout for him out and about when it is once again safe to do so. And in the meantime, I highly recommend you check him out on Instagram. He's really doing some cool stuff there. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Instagram and on workingdrummer.net. We love hearing feedback about what we're doing and what you're hearing. And once again, please consider contributing on Patreon. We greatly appreciate that support. That's patreon.com slash workingdrummer. 
Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview. He'll be talking with Salt Lake City's Joel Stevenette. Until then, stay safe. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.